My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hello, everyone. On this episode, we share a conversation with New Delhi author and oral historian, Achal Malhotra. Stay tuned. You know, my kids will often get on me for truly loving history. To them and to many, it may just feel like the study of episodic dates and names. And speaking of episodes, thank you all so much for listening to the show and sharing it with your friends and family, for subscribing, downloading, and rating the podcast wherever you're listening, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. So for me, examining history has always been a quest to understand and tackle complex questions and the evolution of relationships. I love and appreciate the study of lives and cultures and societies, and I've truly felt a great empathy and longing to understand ideas and traditions that I can't possibly fathom in my own personal microcosm. But you know, for historical events and time periods that have been traumatic, calamitous, and simply so unfathomable, I've wondered if we're often afraid of unmasking pain or asking deeper questions and if we simply tend to gloss over or mask the contours of those stories for the sake of ease and convenience. Now for New Delhi-based oral historian and writer, Achal Malhotra, chronicling personal histories and tracing social ethnography is an expertise that she's developed through scholarship, patience, and incredible relationship development. She's the co-founder of the Museum of Material Memory, an amazing crowdsourced digital repository tracing stories and family-based narratives from the subcontinent. Now, the 1947 partition of India and Pakistan upon the exit of British rule is a profound example of a time period marred by trauma and violence. One of the greatest mass migrations of refugees in modern history, as over 15 million people were displaced, and between 1 and 2 million were estimated to have been killed. Achil has written extensively about partition, using personal longitudinal interviews with individuals and communities about artifacts and heirlooms. And these objects, both public and private in nature, tell stories of families, society, love, relationships, loss, displacement, and yearning. Her expertise has been in presenting unearthed deep expressions and questions about this incredibly violent and disruptive time. Achil's award-winning works have included her first book, Remnants of a Separation, in 2017, which was internationally published as Remnants of Partition in 2019, and her second book, In the Language of Remembering, tracing the long-term, cross-border, generational legacy of partition, which was published to much critical acclaim in early 2022. Her forthcoming book is a debut fiction novel entitled The Book of Everlasting Things, which comes out in December. I was truly grateful to meet with Achal and learn more from her, and as we started out chatting, given her background, I asked her if she herself was sentimental by nature and if she was at all governed by nostalgia. That's a really interesting question. I don't actually think anyone's ever asked me that. Um, I think by nature, I am not uh, innately, I am not sentimental or nostalgic. But I think because of the work I've been doing now for nearly a decade, it has seeped into my personality. So you may find me being very cold at times, but with my work, I'm never cold. Because I think you need a little bit of um, 
even if you don't need it, I think you bring it innately when you're speaking to people, a bit of warmth, a bit of nostalgia, a bit of longing. Um, and it's hard to tell sometimes where the personal and the professional separate because they are so entwined. When, when, you, when your work is with people and you become personally invested in their lives. Yeah. Well, and, and with that, when you are now joining in a dyad, you're talking to somebody and your own balance of, you know, scientific rigor in, if you will, in archiving information, but then also being empathic to other people's thoughts. Are there different modes in some ways of archiving sentiment? Are there ways that your own sentimentality or even nostalgia also plays a role in, in how you perhaps categorize some of these conversations? I think for the longest time, I tried to let it not do that. Yeah. Because the one thing that you want um, in any interview with someone who is revisiting something, say, as dramatic as partition, you want the focus to be on them. You want the conversation to be about them, even though you may have uh, things to add that may absolutely coincide with what they're saying, or you have a similar family experience. The point is to get them to speak as much or as little as they want, because for so long, this conversation about partition has been one of silence, and silence that was practiced by the survivors, quite diligently so. Maybe because they didn't have anyone to speak to, or they didn't want to speak about it, or they simply did not have the words to start a conversation about it, or anything else as well. But I became very aware very quickly that this conversation, this very intimate conversation, was not about me. So how I felt in that moment, what it did to me was not irrelevant, but secondary. Sure. And I think it is after you record the conversation and you go home and you listen to the recording and you start to realize really what was said and what was inferred and maybe what remained unsaid, but could be understood by you because you were there, because of the tone of the voice, because of where the voice lilted because of where they switched languages, because of when they brought out things to show you. I think all of these things factor into how you receive memory as yeah. well and how you perceive that memory you have received. And I, I suppose it's actually quite incredible that you can feel empathetic towards an experience that you have never lived to an extent that you start to really want to do it justice when you're recreating it in text. Did, did you find yourself becoming more and more empathic as the project went along? Naturally, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think also I started when I was very young. So I was 23 years old when I began. And now it is nine, nine years. Yeah. And as you grow older, obviously you start relating to other aspects of their story. Perhaps it would have begun with awe or confusion and then you start reacting to things like leaving family, leaving home. In in the midst of this project, I have moved homes as well from you know moved continents. So that feeling of leaving parts of yourself behind in a place um, that starts to dawn on you. Yeah. And uh, as you spend more time with people's stories, you naturally become more empathetic, but you also become more knowledgeable about that part of the past. So when people are talking to you or when you are asking them questions, you are able to ask more informed questions. 
And I think that really helps in making the conversation more nuanced rather than asking vague questions about how you felt or what it looked like. You could ask, oh, I have read that, you know, or I have heard from other people that in this month, in this year, this happened. There was a massacre. There was a fire. Did you see it? Yeah. So your questions become more nuanced. It's almost like you can sort of do the macro to micro zoom a little bit easier, a little bit faster. I mean, there's more agility to you because you're younger than them, obviously. But I think also when you are a scholar who is constantly talking about this scholarship, that has to come very naturally where someone in an interview will say, oh, can you tell the story that most moved you? And you think to yourself, well, all stories, how can I pick one? But you have to go in, you have to pick one, you have to, or when you're, you're talking about a certain geographical area, some stories will be more resonant than others. So I think this aspect of zooming in and coming out becomes natural when you are well acquainted with your research. Yes. I have a a slightly tangential question. Mm -hmm. And that is, is that as an archivist, as a historian, even, and even in your own personal reflections, are are you at some, to some degree, a hoarder? Surprisingly not. But my mother is and my grandfather is. So I think I grew up with that idea that I would never be one. I mean, like, I, I have rules for myself. Like, if I haven't worn a piece of clothing in two years, it's being given away. Yeah. You know, that's, I, I, I do not like clutter and very organized. Suppose I don't hoard stuff, but there is a, there are other kinds of hoarding. Sure. Well, right? Yeah. Yes, I have become a hoarder of other people's voices. Yeah. Of their memories, of their past. The the, the head is very crowded. Mm. I think that's that's what really gets to me, that... And especially when I was doing many, many interviews in a week, yeah. these stories of many different people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, diaspora, they would blend into each other and create weird amalgamated dreams, yeah. which is a very confusing space to be in. And I would say this hoarding has come as an occupational hazard on us, right? Mm. I can't help but be a collector of these. And, and I wish sometimes that I wasn't. Yeah. Well, and, and so how do you resolve that dichotomy, right? That you're someone who lives an organized, uncluttered life, and yet the idea of in some ways sharing the burden of so many stories and so much experience, or at least accepting and receiving that information. And like you said, sort of being a hoarder of those stories, they all being important. Has that been a a challenge for you to in fact bear some of that? I've only realized it has impacted me later. I think it took five or six years for me to realize it had done something to me. Because when you're working with people and that generation is passing away very quickly, Mm. they're in the twilight of their lives. And even if they are uh, ready to speak, but they may not remember. Yeah. So really, uh, it's a time-bound exercise. And with that, you're sort of in a race against time. Sure. So I think when you have all these factors in your head and you know that you have to record as much as you can of as many people as you can, you don't really think about yourself. Like like I said, like I, I didn't really matter. And then as time passes, you realize how, I suppose it's different for different people because I have asked a lot of other oral historians how they have been impacted by it. Mm. But I can only speak for myself. So with me, it made me more insular, more introverted less comfortable speaking to people my own age, very reserved, and I think a little bit of a workaholic, which I still am. Yeah. 
you know, there was there was so much to, to record and so much to transcribe and so much to put in words. And you realize that so many people's voices have been absent from you. Mm. Yes. And not to say that you are the only person doing this work. You're not. There are there are several other people in the work doing this, but it's still not enough. Yeah. It's yeah. not enough because there will always be people whose voices will go unheard. There will be communities, there will be castes, there will be ethnic areas, geographic areas whose stories would have gone unwritten because we are people of oral histories. Yeah. And we are trying to leave a mark of, of what happened in the past so that future generations can look back. Like an advice that I carved for myself was always right for the future. Mm. Because my ancestors had not left anything for me. Yeah. Not my literal ancestors, but the people that came before me never left anything in writing, never left archive because they could. Yeah. So I don't want future generations to have that regret of not knowing what we have survived. And in fact, with that as sort of backdrop as a motivator, I'm so curious, when do you first actually remember knowing that partition was an active part of your own personal journey. Do you remember that moment of, of, you know, kind of clarity? I would say when I was a child, and it's it's a bit strange growing up in South Asia and not really having that understanding since you were born. I think mm. what we know since we are born is that the word partition is an important word. And we know that without even fully understanding what it would mean. Sure. We are told to, just the way it is used in conversations, we are told to use it with clarity, fragility, delicacy. But I don't think we understand the extent of what it really encompasses. Mm. So I grew up not really knowing that my grandparents were from Pakistan per se or what became Pakistan, but I grew up hearing the word refugee a lot. Mm. And that was because my grandfather had started a small bookshop in what was once a refugee market after partition. It had been made into a market after partition to help in the economic stability of refugees who had come from towards the border. So I would hear the word refugee, and it was said in like refugee. That's how it was said, yeah. refugee market. The leaky refugee market, refugee market of Delhi. And there's huh. so many refugee markets in Delhi. Yeah. So many refugee neighborhoods in Delhi. They're called refugee colonies. And my grandparents lived in a refugee camp when they came to India. Again, I, I don't think you know what it means. You yeah. just know that you hear it, right? Yes. And when we studied about partition in school, it was very much taught as an appendage to the independence movement. It was yeah. not a unit in itself. And it certainly did not encompass what common people went through. Mm. So it was taught to us in a way of statistics and numbers and the decisions that had been taken in the, in the corridors of history with big political leaders, but not how those decisions percolated down to common people in the villages, in the cities, in the, you know, hamlets. And so when we learned about partition, my first instinct was not to come home and say, oh, hey, have you lived through this partition? Yeah. This thing called partition. It was just to consider it something that had happened so far back in the past that it couldn't impact my present. Yeah. Which, of course, it did because it impacted how my grandparents lived, how they behaved, their frugality, their irritation when speaking about things that couldn't be changed. You know, my grandfather would always say, like, why do you want to know the past? It, it won't change anything. They never spoke about, 
they never said the word Pakistan. They would always take the names of villages and cities they came from, which later, when I began really working on partition, noticed this to be a very common trait, mm. that people may connect to the villages and cities they came from, but not necessarily the national boundary that it was now a part of. Sure. So they'd be very comfortable saying things like Lucknow or Calcutta, Gujarawala and Peshawar, but not so much India or Pakistan or yeah. Bangladesh. Because for them, very much their life had revolved around that place. It's interesting because I always associate partition to my maternal, a paternal family. Because they really were the ones that lived in camps, had a lot of difficulty setting up their life again. My grandmother had to work at a very young age. She was 16 or 17. My grandfather had to work. He was 19. And it was really hand to mouth for nearly 10 years. But it is my maternal family that provided the way into partition. Because if you look at partition from afar, it looks very, very vast. And you don't quite know where to begin. You don't quite know how to ask the questions because, and I always think about this a lot, in fact, that for countries that have been born out of trauma and violence, as Pakistan, India, and later Bangladesh were, we don't really have a vocabulary for that violence. We are not equipped with the language to speak about it. We are not even equipped to ask questions about it. In fact, we are not invited to ask questions about it. Sure. Those questions are met with more questions. Yeah. What happened in the past? But why? Why do you want to know? Where am I from? You are from where you are born. This is obviously, I mean, it's very incongruent. Yeah. And in the West, when you ask a question, you're more than often given an answer. I'm thinking about things like the Holocaust, where there is very much, where there may not have been initially, but now there is very much a resounding conversation about what happened and the realities of what happened. But we are not there yet. So... It was my maternal family that came from Lahore to Delhi and with relative ease. Their extended families may have seen violence, but my my grandparents specifically did not see any. So they came with relative ease. They saw what happened to Delhi during partition. They saw how neighbors were dragged out of their homes. They saw the violence in the streets of old Delhi. That is what they described to me. But it was them that provided me an insight um, through the objects they had carried. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how I first began to be interested in partition because I started looking at things that people had carried. By the way, just just to capitalize on that, you said that people weren't taught to talk about it, to reflect on it, to share. And yet were the objects themselves now the currency and the language that was being used here? If you want to see it like that. Okay. Because I do think it's a pretty abstract idea. Yeah. And not everyone, like in that room, the day I was introduced to these objects that had been carried from Lahore to Amritsar and then Delhi, I was the only person that was affected by it. Mm. No one else was. Yeah. So obviously, it really depends on your preoccupations. But I was, I couldn't believe that my grandfather's eldest brother, when he was talking about these ordinary things like a vessel and a yardstick, used to measure fabric, he was completely transported to the past. Yeah. Speaking in Punjabi, talking about walking the streets of Lahore, eating chilgoza, drinking lassi, kites that they used to fly on Basan. And it was not just the fact that he had gone back to the past so seamlessly, but also that he had traversed this very untraversable, militarized border between India and Pakistan. Through the object. 
through the objects, through memory, yeah. which is a sentiment that many people revisited. As I began speaking to one book, people, they would say, we visit India in our dreams. We visit Pakistan. We cross the border every day. Yeah. Because in dreams, it is possible. In conversation, it is possible. In memory, it is possible. In reality, it is very hard. Were the, were the objects and the, I mean, were they catalysts? Was it almost like a psychological time machine for them that sort of gave them the licensure and even the kind of ability to now become more open to that? I think we are looking at it in retrospect. We are saying things like license and give them the ability, which yeah. which means that you're you're putting meaning into that, right? True. This is what I yeah. do as well. I look at things in retrospect and say, this is what was happening. But at that time, he was just talking. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, there was something concrete and tangible from his past in front of him. Mm. And he was telling a story as he would do his grandchild. And later, yes, exactly. I realized that the object is very much the catalyst. We, we, we bury, we put parts of ourselves into things without realizing it. And yeah. we do this to every object we have. Right. Everything. Right. It, it reminds us of when we bought it. Who gave it to us? How old it is? What it is used for? What we now use it for? But we don't often give objects importance because objects cannot speak. Sure. Any conversation they are to have is contingent on what we put into them, the importance that we give, which is something, again, that I realized while speaking to people because not everyone gave importance to objects. Yeah. It was through our conversations, three, four hour long conversations where I would be obsessing over this cup, for instance, and they, they would have seen the cup in their kitchen for 60 years. And then at the end of the conversation, if I were to propose, oh, can I borrow this cup for my research? I'd just like to look at it. And they would say, no, 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 it's, it's mine. Yeah. It belonged to my mother. You know, we carried it from, from all the way from Pakistan. Right. So I think people's sense of importance towards things also changed. Their possessiveness. Yeah. But at the beginning, it was very nascent. It was almost innocent to think that, yes, of course, we can travel to parts of our past through the objects that belong to those parts. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with oral historian and writer Achal Malhotra. Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, this is Madhuri Dixit, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back. Let's rejoin our conversation now with author Achal Malhotra. Because that was the beginning, this sort of sense of innocence, this almost naivete about the objects and not necessarily knowing what the future impact would be to those people who are now, you know, taking those objects and, and feeling a newfound possession or a newfound kind of attachment to those objects. When you were writing um, Remnants of a Separation, and then you were also founding this sort of museum of material memory. At the same time, was there, a, again, also the same kind of dichotomy in thinking that, like, I, I'm, I'm in some ways capturing something that's very private, that's very, that's possessed newly by, by other people, 
and almost that I'm I'm sharing this with with others and trying to archive it in a way that seems like I'm perhaps exposing something rather than archiving something. That's an interesting passage to that question. Yes, in some parts, yes. There were instances, particularly with objects that were heirlooms. I remember specifically a fulkari bag, a bag is like a shawl, a little bit larger than a shawl. Fulkari is a very, almost revered way of embroidery from Punjab where women get together and they weave. They weave on khaki cloth with silk threads, this incredibly floral pattern of embroidery. And it is very much a place where women can gather and speak freely. They sing songs when they when they embroider and they gossip and talk. And these kinds of fulkari dupattas or bags or shawls or even smaller pieces, they are usually made for celebration. Mm. So marriages, births of children. And there was a fulkari bag which had been made in the early 1900s, which was now in possession uh, with the great-granddaughter. And we had spoken about this bag for a very long time. And then at the end of our conversation, she said, oh, put it on. You should see how heavy it is, put it on. And I, you know, the thing is, when there's something so intimate and it involves so many members of a family and your actual hand has gone into the creation of that object, it is, you know, the imperfections can be seen, the kind of energy of people that came before you lies in that, in that article of clothing. Uh, it felt very awkward for me to put it on. So I very like tepidly put it on me and uh, it, within seconds I was like, no, no, I don't want it. But then I put it on her and it felt right. Yeah, It felt very right. And I also was sure to include that in my text. Yeah, You know, because for some objects, like for utensils and stuff, it may not feel as um, significant because it's used by multiple members of the family or sure. the kitchen store. Yeah. But with something like that, something that was so sacred, something that had passed physically through so many hands and been cared for and worn and left their own mark on it. It felt very personal. To your question of whether it feels like an invasion, yes, of course, sometimes I feel I'm being very invasive because maybe asking questions they don't want to answer. Yeah. Maybe asking questions that they don't have answers for. Like they, they actually don't remember. Yeah. Or you may be asking questions that other people in their family don't know about. Right, right. But do I feel like I am being invasive when I write and share these stories with people? That has never happened. The reason for that is before anything is published in any book of mine, I often share it with the family yeah. and we go through it together. And because when you're recording stories, you know, there, there are lots of things that can happen. You can mishear. They can misremember. And then there are certain things that you are more comfortable seeing that you may not be comfortable seeing down in text. Yeah. So, you know, we edit the piece together and then only when they are satisfied with what is there on the page does it ever go to press. Sure. So in that sense, there is never a feeling of... Um, You're not necessarily disrupting the intimacy or... No, because... I, and I never feel that because... I think it, it's it's so contingent on how you are with the family as well. Sure. Like for me, it's very important to like stay in touch with everyone I interview. Yeah. So 
whether it's someone who is 19 or whether it's someone who is 95, I still speak to them very much. Yeah. It's not, uh, there's no, like, I'm using your story. Right, right. Because I am very conscious of that not being the case, which also means during the interview, you should be receptive to them asking. Mm. And I always think of this as the plateau method. I, there's, it's, not an actual, it's not an actual method. It's just something I do for myself. That if you expect someone to reach here for you, then you will also have to do the same, yeah. whether by sharing parts of your life or spending time or just coming on the same level field, however long that may take. What it also sounds like is, is that the conversations that you were having were clearly not meant to be transactional. They, they were, um, if, if that was the approach, then you wouldn't have been able to kind of have this, in some ways, negotiation of empathy and meet this sort of plateau method that I'm imagining you must have gone through. But a, a, a separate sort of tangent question comes up for me in thinking about that. You uh, must have encountered such incredible richness and diversity and variance in the narration of these stories and and such an evolving development of the entire kind of experience especially as you talk to people of multiple generations and as you were writing sort of in the language of remembering this and now like thinking about different particular generations and family members and and how they intertwined and, and interacted with each other. Did, did you find that there was that same plateauing or that empathy that was going across from generations themselves, independent of you, by the way? So the first time I ever thought that an intergenerational book could be written was when I experienced three generations discussing their history together in the world. And this was back in 2014. And it was such a simple conversation, something we, we do all the time in our families where someone is recounting something and someone else is like, no, 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 no. You, you didn't say it was like that. You remember you said this happened and, and this is how long it took you. And then someone else is like, and then, you know, you, you were wearing this and don't you remember you only told me this. You know, this is a very normal conversation. Right. Because memory is not a recording device. It is, it is, we do not take photographs of our past. Memory is very receptible to change. And with how much more we learn about the past, every time we learn more about the past, our memory is older. Yeah. Right? So a lot of people who lived through Pachin and were children and did not really understand what was happening to them, they themselves have read books, watched films, listened to radio programs about what happened and informed their memories. Yeah. So they tell you things that are a compilation of lived, inherited, and acquired memory. Sure. When I saw that conversation in Lahore, it was such a simple thing. We were sitting on a carpet on the floor. We were looking at objects. It dawns on you that intergenerational remembering is possible. And it is something that offers you multiple viewpoints based on where these three generations or four generations or two generations come from. And that was the first time I thought that, okay, maybe in the future you can think of writing a book like this. But I'd always deemed it um, like side research because already it was so hard to get people to talk about partition openly and take it seriously. Because again, this is not archival history, it's oral history. It's based on people's memories. And so the first question 
you get is about the shortcomings of the methodology itself. How can you trust someone's memory? Yeah. And while oral history, yes, bears that shortcoming on its sleeve, I think it's it should be understood for the diversity of narratives that it allows you to look at. It is successful because of its subjectivity, because it is not empirical, because there is no one way to talk about partition. There are multiple viewpoints based on where you were, who you were, what your ethnicity is, what your caste is, what your religion is, what language you spoke, where you were traveling from, what your, how wealthy you were, you know, how wealthy or poor you were, how much you knew about partition. All of these factors create different stories. How do you deal with, especially with such a charged discussion or even a silent discussion, like which partition, can also be a charged discussion. Which can also be a charged discussion. How do you deal with things like rigidity? How do you deal with things like people whose stories change from one time you talk to them to maybe a few days later when they when you talk to them, or or people how how they change their minds over time about their memories? Excellent question. All of it happens, and all of it has happened to me. I made a rule for myself quite early on that I would never interview someone multiple times. Okay. Because of how their memory changes yeah. in the same story. And not just that, because of how they know what they want, what you want to hear from them. Sure. So very early on, I decided I would only interview people once. It may be a long interview. Uh, we may take several breaks for chai and coffee and lunch and snacks and all that playing cards and all that stuff but playing cards that's want, great yeah i think you do what people want to do sure you yeah. talk about their tambola night you play cards with them you, you, you take their dog for a walk with them you know like you spend you spend time with them absolutely the thing is in this generation i don't know how it is in other places but in the subcontinent there is despite us being such close family units there is palpable loneliness generation Absolutely. and yeah. spending time with someone and talking to them are two different things so while people may sit with their parents and grandparents they may not actually have a proper conversation with them so i found a lot of people really starved for that and the fact that i was spending dedicated hours and i think this is the case for every oral historian not just me we spend dedicated hours speaking to someone about them about the things that they want to talk about whether it is about the past or not. And I think that giving them time, yeah, it really means a lot. And did you find that either those extremes of being very rigid about their memories or, or in fact the evolution and being very open about how they, their minds changed or how they evolved, did you encounter a lot of that? Particularly, you know, were there any patterns that you saw based upon the generations? Well, let's say that I remember particularly when I was doing interviews in Pakistan as an Indian, there were, I mean, you are the other there. Yeah. You have to record an interview based on how that interview is being told to you, despite you agreeing with it or not. Yeah. That's not the point. The point is the words the person is using, the way they remember their life is how you have to transcribe things. 
this leads to a lot of unlearning. Hmm. Unlearning every day, every single day with something or the other that people said. And you realize quickly that there are two sides to every story. Sure. Every story. Even the most obvious story that has been written and rewritten in history has another side to it. And history itself becomes more malleable. Hmm. It can be shaped different ways. Sure. There was rigidity in terms of, I suppose, how far you can push. You learn the threshold of your questioning with every interview. Can I ask this question? Is it too much? Oh God, there are tears. What have I asked? Yeah. Sometimes people would say that's enough. Right. Sometimes they would say, do you mind if I don't remember that? Do you mind if I don't recall that? I don't want to repeat it. I don't want to bring these things to life again. This is exactly what someone said to me once. So even though you know there are things worse than what you're hearing, you know you're not going to hear those things. But because you have seen visuals, heard of stories, the, the photographs of partition are etched in people's minds. So you can imagine, you can well imagine what they will describe. Did I face Thing, uh, there are these instances where people change their memories. Not me, but I've heard from other people of how the media influences people's memories. Yeah. Like, for instance, there was a film, Gadar, where um, there's a scene in a train where something is written on blood. Now, the director of the film said that scene was inspired from real life. It was possible. Yeah. Someone I know... Or someone I read, some, somewhere I read that an interview was conducted with a person that said, I saw a train where something was written in blood. Now, is that memory inspired by the film? Or was he there in person because the memory itself inspired the scene of the film? It's difficult to tell sometimes, but I think that I used to be very concerned with these kinds of inaccuracies. But now I, I don't concern myself with them anymore because I'm not interested in answering that question about truth and veracity. And like, my concern is to record a story that has been unrecorded and somehow has defined the fabric of three nations, four nations. My allegiance is to the story. Yeah. There are ways, of course, you can gauge. For instance, if... This is something that happened to me. When multiple people start to speak about the same event mm -hmm. with the exact same details and the exact same timeline and the exact same horrors. Yeah. Especially for an event that has gone unrecorded in archival history. Then you know that that happened. And that is something that has happened to me. Also, people say certain things that you can verify in archive. Yeah. For instance, if someone says that I was three years old when my father picked me up on his shoulders and we watched as Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru rode through an Arkali Bazaar on a white horse on his way to River Ravi. And it seems like such a ridiculous kind of parade-like thing, but that happened. And you can find it in an archive. Yeah. What is also helpful for me in verifying, if I ever need to, is people's self-published memoirs of that time. Sure. You know, because these are people that have written things down from memory. As you've been cataloging and collecting and taking an oral history and grappling with the subjectivity of things and verifying all of this related to partition and all of its incredibly, I mean, the ocean of sort of cultural tentacles uh, that it has, 
particularly for you, what lessons or discoveries did you actually make about yourself? I'm more patient than I think I am. I'm innately introverted as a person. Something I haven't been able to understand is why I have a need to tell other people's stories. And this does not reflect on like my goodness or anything because I, I, don't, I don't see, I, I think I can be selfish as well. Obviously, I'm self-perceptive as well. Yeah. Um, but I do think there is something where I feel very deeply about stories that have not made it to public consciousness. Stories that mm. have defined nations and defined the lives of people. Stories, not just like one people, multiple people. Yeah. Entire generations of people that had to start over. So I feel very strongly about how my grandparents could have become data or how their stories didn't matter enough for us to learn them in school or even ask about it at home, which, which is changing. Did you find a new sense of responsibility because of that? For sure. That, that comes without saying it comes from the first interview. It comes when you do something that's bigger than yourself. Sure. And that is another thing that happened, right? Like you realize very quickly how small you are. And how so much, Salman Dashti writes this in Midnight's Children, that so much of history, your history has been lived, so much of your story has been written before you were born. Right. right? In my case, knowledge about partition has really changed the way I view my family history and what they have endured and survived. And I know everyone that learns about partition is like this. What it makes me think of is we all carry so much of our own narrative and our own biases. And um, for you, did you have to grapple with either the acceptance or the unraveling of some of these biases? And many more things, many more things. Like we carry stories we don't even know we have. Sure. Right. Similarly, we carry prejudice and bias, which we don't know we have or think we have based on where we are born, what religion we are born into, place, parents, everything, your own entitlement. Sure. It really comes, um, you really have to rethink all of these things when you're speaking to someone whose story may either be very similar to yours or very different. And I think I'll give you a small example. I conducted an interview with um, a Hindu who was born and raised in Pakistan and lives in Pakistan, uh, lives in Dubai. Uh, his story is in my second book. And through our conversation, he was saying, I'm a Pakistani Hindu. Mm-hmm. Saying, As a Pakistani Hindu, being a Pakistani Hindu, I'm a Pakistani Hindu. And I was saying, as a Hindu Pakistani, being a Hindu Pakistani, you're a Hindu Pakistani. Do you see the difference in those places? Never in my life have I said Muslim Indian, Parsi Indian. Christian, Indian, Sikh, Indian, Hindu, yeah. Indian. I always say Indian, Hindu, Indian, Indian, Christian. Why was I saying Hindu, Pakistani? Where very clearly he meant his primary identifying factor was his nationality, not his religion. Right. And it changes how you view the conversation. And I had to pause and say, what have I been saying? Yeah. And I think also noting that down, writing about it, accepting Accepting not just your mistake, but your something you didn't even consider, something that's like automatic for you. A Hindu who is a minority in Pakistan must 
must be considered first and you know first a Hindu then a Pakistani but whereas he was very much assertive that his primary identity identity was as a Pakistani regardless of what his religion may be sure so this is I think a good example of how you how you view a person the way they want to be you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with oral historian and writer Achal Malhotra. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Let's rejoin our conversation now with author Ajal Malhotra. I read that you said once that partition just can't be simplified and that it can only be archived so that it just exists. The thing is, how do you simplify something? Simplifying it is doing it injustice. There are so many complexities in it. There are so many multiple viewpoints, ethnicities, massacres, kindnesses, uh, so many exchanges of population, so many fears, suspicions, biases, prejudices, hopes, despairs, loves, lost, loves, found, separations, reunions. So much heaviness in that legacy that to simplify it means to diminish it almost. Mm. We must listen to it in all of its complexities. There is no other way. There is no other way. There are things that divide us, but there are things within those divisions that may bind us, right? Um, and I, do, I don't think we've really done that by now. I think that is the work that oral historians are doing. Because all that being true has gone silent or remains important work to be done, is the simplification of it basically a, a coping mechanism is it a bandage that is the easy path of least resistance to put on a story like this? Very similar to what you learned in school, it being data, it being a, you know, I wouldn't say an afterthought, but, but the simplification is very intentional. Yes, um, part of that is true, I think. Uh, how do you explain something as complex as partition to lay people that haven't seen it firsthand. Um, but I think this has a huge downside. Yeah, on some base level, do people want to simplify it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think they want to engage with it. But I yeah. don't know if it's a coping mechanism because that means that you're... I don't actually know the answer to that. Sure. Because I think everyone that has... Once you realize that your your family has been impacted by partition, there is like a thirst to know all the details if you can. Right. So it's not like there is a lack of interest. I think that it's just very complicated because sure. so many other questions come up. Yeah. And like for example, I don't know how to speak to partition uh, to children about partition. So many times I've been asked come and speak to small children. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. Because I don't know what to say. Um, 
Sorry, I don't actually think I have a good enough answer to your question. No, and, and, and I don't, I'm not sure there is an answer. I, 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 it's a curiosity that I have in that, I mean, you bring up this idea of how to speak to children about it. I, I think people must have asked that question many, many times over. And, they, the, and the unfortunate answer they've come up with is what you experienced, perhaps, when you were learning about it. Mm, maybe. I don't know. Like, so I remember asking my grandmother, that my paternal grandmother, that when you were in the camp, if there was someone like me, someone like a journalist or an oral historian or a writer going around asking people, do you want to talk? It's kind of like, it feels very therapisty, but, you know, just to record. Yeah. What what more journalists do sometimes? I said, if someone like me was going around asking questions and listening, would you have wanted to talk? I know very, very quickly in a single breath, she was like, no. I said, but why? She says, maybe my mother would have wanted to talk, but what did we understand about partition? Again, she was 16. She didn't really quite understand what was happening. But then she went on and she said, when you ask me questions, what do you think happens to me? I start to think about that time again. I start to be in that moment again. And it's true. Over the last eight or nine years, we have talked about the past innumerable times. I have asked her hundreds of times to become that 16-year-old girl again, to enter the camp, to tell me about what she studied, tell me about her jobs, tell me about what she saw, tell me about the train station, the train, the bodies, the bloody water, everything. And then still there are details. Every time a new detail comes up. But she says that every time you ask me, I go back to that time. And when you leave, that time stays with me. And I said, well, then do you not want me to ask? And very quickly she says, yes. And I'm like, I'm taken aback because I didn't think that's what she would say. And then after a moment, she says, no, you should ask because no one else has asked. Mm. And so she is also aware, dis despite her not wanting to, not wanting to offer maybe, she's also aware of the challenges that we face when we have these lacunas in our history. And there are spaces of emptiness that we, we don't know what happened. And I, I don't I still don't know so much of what happened to them. I don't know what happened the first night she was in the camp, how she would have felt, what she was wearing, what they ate. I don't know any of this stuff. I don't know what she felt like when she took her first job, what it felt like when she bought something for the first time from the money that she earned. I mean, and it's okay for... Even, I suppose, histories that have public interest to be private. Yeah. You know, um, Edmund de Waal, who is a British ceramicist and writer, wrote this incredible memoir called The Hell with Amber Eyes. And I quote it very often and I read it very often. But there is this small section in the book where he describes his grandmother, who was an avid letter writer, Elizabeth, yeah. avid letter writer, burning all of the letters. And he's very, you know, he comes from a family that really preserve and archive things. And he's very surprised when he learns of her burning letters. And he says something to the effect that there are things, there are, not everything needs to be passed on. You know, some things need to be private. 
not everything needs to become legacy. It can become memory, but it doesn't have to be passed down in its uh, its tangibility. Yeah. You know, so so Edmund is remembering, like he has memory, secondhand memory of those letters because he knows that she was an avid letter writer and he wishes that she could read, he could read these letters, but he says that it was a very conscious act of burning the letters. If the memory fades, does the learning get lost? Does that not depend on when memory gets reignited and by whom? Because mm. memories of so many people have faded, but I think with people like me and, and others asking questions, they do get reignited with new purpose sometimes. And I see that with a lot of grandchildren also. The more they ask, the more they learn. I was going to say, as you discover now in multiple generations and you you think about this even more deeply and there's a new corner that you come to with each conversation as a listener, as an archivist, as a historian, as a writer, with each of these conversations, have you been able to cultivate trust as a skill? Um, with my interviews, you mean? Even in you know the work you do, in people thinking of it, as a as a trustworthy archive as an in, what makes you entrustable why shouldn't i be asking you that question <laughs> what makes you trust me no it's a, it's a valid question right it I is mean, a valid question i've never thought about it because i guess i'm i'm a bit hyper obsessed with being true to what i hear and the sincerity of the act of recording i mean for me it's it's very sacred that relationship you share with someone is very sacred, but it's a really valid question. I don't know if when I come to interview someone, they trust me. Uh, you can't make someone say something they don't want to say. Right. Similarly, you can't publish something you think someone has said when they haven't said. There may obviously be something in my mannerism and persona that may I'm not doing a good job of selling myself here. <laughs> no, I, I, I wonder, have you, have you discovered your own sense of vulnerability, your own genuine and authenticity? Constantly, constantly. Yeah. And with every, every person, with every person, uh, stories impact you in a way that you didn't expect them to because you think that sure. you're so far removed from something like this. Like, I'll give you another example. When I was writing my last book, we often... So many times in the course of my research over the last decade, I have thought that if so many people were victims of violence, then some people would have been perpetrators of that violence. And I have never had an opportunity to interview anyone who was a perpetrator at the time. Now, a couple of years ago, I received an email from someone who uh, said, I'd like to tell you a story about my ancestor who did perpetrate violence against women during partition. And I didn't really quite know how to... Personally, I didn't know how that email came to me, why that email came to me. But then I didn't actually know what to say because I'd never been on the receiving end of such a such a story. So I took I took a, some time. And eventually we began a conversation over email. And it wouldn't be a conversation that was immediate, but it was a conversation that was spanned over like months where they would write sometimes and I would write and they would write and... Very gradually, the story unfolded of this ancestor, extended family who had sold women during partition. And 
young women. And as a very young woman myself, I think that story really caught me. Like there was, I didn't, when I wrote that story, there was a wrath in my words I didn't know I was capable of. Mm. I don't really think I am a wrathful person. That's not a word I would ever use to describe myself. I'm very calm, very composed, and quite actually, I can look at things from the outside because of how long I've been doing this work. But that story, I just I remember just putting myself in the position of those young women whose families had died and this person was rounding them up and gathering them and selling them. And it was like angry. I think all my texts were so angry. And I remember sharing it with my interviewee and he was surprised at the wrathful nature of my words. And he says that I think what they said really mattered because it was then I realized that the story must be told in the way that it is being told to me, not the way I am interpreting it. Sure. I may be analyzing and drawing patterns between different stories, but it is not my responsibility to hold judgment over someone, particularly over someone that didn't commit an act, but whose ancestor did, extended ancestor. Yeah. Which is what they said as well. They said that I'm the one to hold the scales of justice over something and extended family member did in the past, I'm just telling you what I know yeah. and have collected from snippets of conversations, never obviously told in one go, but overheard, you know? Yeah. So if they were being vulnerable enough with me to to offer this story, to offer this memory, to put it in words, which is hard, then I should also be respectful enough to receive it in that same way. These are very, like in hindsight, it seems like easy lessons to have learned. But I'm, I'm struggling still to find the words to talk about them. Of course. What I, what's tangible in you even sharing that is the layers and scaffolding of trust that must have been there in order for that to even unfold to some degree, at least in the, in the early stages. Right. I can't explain that. Like, but I saw it okay. like early when I was doing this work, no one really knew about it. And I was often told that this work will not matter. And you know, like people are very dismissive of, of things at times here in the yeah. subconscious. The relevance and importance of people's stories does not, uh, does not take center stage. So that's why people you know, even when they were voicing that it is a way to regain your own story, like it is a way to have self-importance. Yeah, so like it's empowering to some degree. I'm it is empowering, yes. Yeah. So at the beginning, in the first few years, it took me a long time for people to take this work seriously. But now, why do so many people write to me? Why do so many people want to talk? Obviously, because they feel a connection to an event that they have not lived, that they... And it's complicated as a descendant to talk about partition because it's literally an event you have not lived and you're constantly questioning, do I have the right to talk about something my right. grandparent or parent went through? Sure. But I feel a secondhand connection to it that I can't describe and I can't explain. And I don't even know why I feel that. And I think this is particularly true for diaspora folks that are living with multi-hyphenated identities where when they learn of partition already, you know, emigration to another land is very complicated. 
it creates all senses of um, just so many kind of identities you have to grapple with on an everyday basis. But then learning about partition and knowing that for your whole life, you have associated with this one nation in the subcontinent. And all of a sudden, your grandparents migrating from its neighboring nation gives you an association there. That is another complication that that I have often spoken to people about, which they grapple with while learning about partition, often in their 20s and 30s. First off, I could probably talk to you for hours about this, and I think you may not have that time, but I'm grateful for for your generosity of time. But I, I had one sort of like final thought, and that is, you know, your upcoming book, the Book of Everlasting Things. Tell us a little bit about what questions you hope readers will be asking and in some ways answering once reading it. It's a novel. So it has, uh, it's not oral history, it's not nonfiction, it's fiction. Yeah. And to be honest, after 10 years of writing partition history, it's very exhausting. And so I began writing this book that, ultimately became about partition um, right. <laughs> because really it's it's hard for me to move too far away from it but it's fictional so it's um like your classic historical fiction and it deals with i would say three main elements one is the art of perfumery yeah my main character is a perfumer and I, i've been shadowing a perfumer for five years to be able to write the book it deals with partition and it also deals with the Indian involvement in the First World War, which is another story mm. which that has almost been erased from public consciousness until very sure. recently. And uh, it's a love story. But I do think, if I, if I look back at the trajectory of my work in general, I would say that with every book, I'm moving away from the nucleus of partition. With the first book, with Remnants of Partition, which is what it's called in America, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. It has two different titles in, in South India, Asia. Yeah. Right. So with remnants of partition, it was very much about the generation that had lived it, seen it, survived it. Within the language of remembering, it is about descendants and how they carry their memories forward. And with everlasting things, it is about, I suppose, just the memory of partition carrying throughout their lives, nothing to do with the actual there are horrors, but um, it looks at partition from a very, very macro lens mm. where someone carries that memory across oceans while emigrating westward. Do you hope that readers will have uh, the, the same way that you link to these three together? Do you hope that they'll have the same kind of arc here in some ways? I think, yes, you hope that people will see the passage of a historical event in your work, yes. And that is also the link of, of my thought process. But you really, as I've seen, you can't predict how people perceive your work. Sure. You know, um, and they may, they may come up with interpretations that you never even imagined, which is interesting because it can be good for you in some ways and very bad for you in other ways. But I think really once a work is out there, it doesn't really belong to you, even though you know it best. Yeah. Well, having a at least a brief front row seat to your thought process has been 
lovely and wonderful. And I'm so grateful for you to join us. And thank you so much for all that you're doing. And I hope we can come back and visit with you again. I would love that. Thank you. It was a very meandering conversation. But it's nice. I think sometimes you view your own process um, from the outside, if you can. Thanks so much, Achal. And please check out more at achalmalhotra.com. For those in the U.S., please register and vote this week. And for everyone everywhere, I hope you create your own future nostalgia across generations through conversations, dialogue, and active listening. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darndekar.